0: I'm Carol Cohn, and welcome to Purpose 360, the podcast that unlocks the power of purpose to ignite business and social impact. Today's segment is very different. It's a journey of an amazing man who went from a prison yard to Harvard yard, and along the way, how he found and lost his purpose multiple times, but ultimately, he did win against his personal demons. Andre Norman's early life put him on a path to prison. Raised in poverty and surrounded by dysfunction, he gravitated to his neighborhood gang. His choices there led to time in juvenile detention and eventually a maximum security prison with sentences totaling over 100 years. During that time, Andre became one of the most dangerous gang leaders in the Massachusetts prison system. Then came an epiphany. Just before Andre was to be crowned king of prison, he had a realization that he was about to become the king of nowhere. He decided that there had to be a way out, he chose to seek success through education, setting his sights on where others said it was absolutely impossible, attending Harvard University. In his book, which I absolutely suggested all of you read, it's called The Ambassador of Hope by Andre Norman. It will show you a path of someone who you never thought would become a purpose leader. And fascinating in the book, when he talks about his entire life, the introduction is a dear, dear letter to his son, Brooks. And it says this, Dear Brooks, I pray that you, as you read this book and learn about my past, that you better understand why I want the best for you. My best days in life began when you were born June 27th, and you've been the best gift that God could have ever given me. Andre ends the book with a letter to his father, which I'd like to read a bit for you. Dear Dad, I've been very disappointed with you and our relationship for most of my life now, thinking of the times when I needed you most to find myself alone without your support or guidance. This book could never describe the hurt or pain that I endured. I was focused on my truth and lessons to help others rather than your feelings. And he says in the letter, I just wanted more of you. He ends it I love you, I miss you, and I forgive you. Your son, Andre. And so, um, Andre, welcome to the show, and we're going to have an amazing conversation.
1: I have to tell you, my favorite sister has the same name
0: as you. Oh, well, I hope that that's a a good sign. Definitely. (laughs) So as you all know, I have a segment called By the Numbers. It's usually the size of a company, their employees, their donations, the countries they're in. For Andre, it's very different. Andre was one of six children. His prison sentence that could have lasted 100 years came down to 18 to 25. He was in a prison system with 20,000 inmates. He decided he wanted to, to be the king. He became number three and almost number one. In doing so, he almost killed eight people. But when he had his epiphany, he started his GED study. He spent 18 months studying with Rabbi Schaefer. Another number, after Andre had parole and found his purpose to truly help others, he was asked to step into the Lee Correctional Institute riot, the worst riot in America's prison system in 25 years. In that system, after seven inmates were murdered, 30 were injured, and countless others had huge trauma. He and a team came in to turn that notorious system around. There were 19,000 prisoners there. There were 500 hardcore leaders, and Andre and his team decided to focus on the top 100. And over time, when they spent a tremendous amount of time listening and talking and allowing the prisoners to share their pain, their traumatic childhoods. After they went through their work together, there was not one fight. There was no staff assaults. There was no use of force. There were no um, knives or guns. And there was no refusal to lock in. By the numbers, very different, but very, very impactful for Andre Norman. So, Andre, again, welcome to the show. And I'd like to start out why, about just telling a little bit about, well, there's a lot to tell, but a little bit about yourself. And, and when you were a, a youth growing up um, in the Boston area, um, what it was like.
1: Well, going back to my early childhood before I got a chance to leave the house, my mother was saying from zero to six, you belong to her from six plus you belong to the world because you don't really engage the world as a baby. You just only know what's inside your household. So from zero to six, when I was exclusively in the house with my family, it was, a lot, it was six kids. So there was a lot of people to play with. There's always somebody around. It was just a lot of turmoil with my mother and father fighting all the time. And you're trying to make, This makes sense at two, at three, at four. It's just always been there. And it's just like always been problematic and stressful. My dad's a big guy. He's 6'6", 300 pounds. So it was never a fair fight if you want to call it a fight. Um, So, and in the 70s, there was no such thing as domestic violence. It was called handling your household. You had complete right to punch your wife in the face if you felt like it. And she had no recourse. So when I got, finally, we hit that six-year-old mark. And we got old enough to go to school. It was like an escape from the from the trauma. I got to go to school and school became my safe place. I could go and I could play and I could just be away from the, the, the drama of my house and just be carefree and careless and just run around and play all day. And that's what I did. And I couldn't wait to go to school until one day, riding home from school, kids lined up on the side of the road and threw rocks at our bus and called us niggers and just chanted bad stuff at us. What I didn't know was a federal judge that signed a law saying black kids and white kids will go to school together to make the world a better place. Nobody said anything to me. I'm a first grader. I'm on the bus. I'm just going to school to play with my friends. And I became part of history because we were part of that initial group of kids who had to go through the trauma of busing in Boston. It wasn't a, wasn't a fun thing. And nobody ever called me before, during or after. to say that we're going to make the world a better place. Just stick with it, straight. I just it was just another thing along the way that I had to deal with.
0: In the book, you talk about that your brothers and sisters called you the dummy.
1: When you didn't. when you're a kid, you don't know what a dummy is fully. Um, I couldn't read and write. So that's why they called me a dummy. And I remember the day we were sitting downstairs, me and my little brother, we were in the room playing. And my sister came down and said, hey, Anthony, we want you to come play with us. But he gets up as the oldest says, come. I said, hey, I'm sitting by myself now. I said, well, what about me? They said, you can't play. You're a dummy. I said, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. They said, they went upstairs without me. So I followed them upstairs to my sister's room, all the while saying, I want to play, being the annoying brother that I am. And we got to the door. She turned around and said, no. My brother walked in the room and he went and sat on the bed. I don't gave him a play. I just kept insisting to come in. She said, spell the word how and we'll let you play. I couldn't spell it. She said, see, you're a dummy. And they all laughed and they closed the door. And I turned and went back downstairs. Now, that was just part of my day. There was a sister who from Sweden. She had a thing called the wisdom letters. And you go back into your childhood and you write a letter about a part of your life. And she said, pick the most painful thing you can mention you can find. And it was a day they called me a dummy. And we went through this whole exercise and come to find out they did me a favor, not letting me go in that room. Because everybody who was in that room is struggling today.
0: So I want to talk about your father. Yes. You said your father was there and then one day he was gone.
1: Came home from school and they said, dad's gone. So what do you mean? (laughs) Come home and say the house is gone. What do you mean the house is gone? He's, I've never known life without dad being in the house. When I came home and they said, dad's gone, it didn't make sense. It's like, it's like saying the refrigerator's gone. And then so you come to go through the, where did he go? Why did he leave? What really happened? How do I fix it? In my mind, I'm trying to fix it, but I'm eight years old. I don't fix things while I eat. So I'm trying to fix something that's way bigger than me. and that I don't even have an understanding of So of course, you get to the point of blaming yourself. I must have done something. I don't know to blame
0: other people. And you said your father taught you something that had such a huge impact on your life. He quit on you. And he taught you to quit in life. And, you know, when you read the book, you can feel your pain. You can feel the anger coming from the pain. What did that loss of your father and your wishing that he would be at your graduation, You're wishing he would teach you things, how did that ultimately turn you into the streets, and then getting into trouble?
1: I learned three lessons as a young boy. Um, And those three things shaped my life. There was a lens in which I saw the world. I didn't fully understand it, but I can clearly see it looking back. The first lesson, it's okay to hit people. Because if my mom can be hit, anybody can be hit. The second lesson is I better protect myself. Because those kids threw rocks and names at me, nobody came to help me. And the last is, I can quit. If my dad can walk out on me, then I can walk out on anything. So if a test is too hard or somebody's giving me a hard time, I just quit. And I didn't understand it, but those were the three things that I saw the world through. And so as I grew up, if something was too tough, I just quit. If somebody gave me a hard time, I hit them. You know what I'm saying? And I was always really protective and defensive about myself.
0: I want to talk. have you talk a little bit about the trumpet story because I believe that that was the first time you found purpose in your life because you were learning how to play the trumpet. And you had a teacher that saw in you this
1: talent. Miss Ellis is a (laughs) lifesaver. Sixth grade. I mean, it's tough going into sixth grade. All the big kids. I was small. People see me now they don't realize I was like four foot eight when I was in the sixth grade. I was a tiny guy. And kids used to Pick on me, bully me, whatever you want to call it, make fun of me. Miss Ellis gave, put me in the band. Every kid back in the 70s was in the band just because. It was just a prerequisite of going to school, you are in the band. And she gave me the trumpet. And I started playing the trumpet. And unlike most other people, I spent my entire middle school on punishment. I failed a test. I got in a fight. I came home late for curfew. There was always some reason I was on punishment, justifiably just so. So what being on Punishment gave me a chance to do was play my trumpet. I played my trumpet every day for three years and I got good at it. And at the end of the middle school, I was going to the local district high school. And Miss Ellis said, no, you need to go to a school that has a music program. Because I, I want to go with my friends. She said, no, you go where your talent takes you, your gift takes you. And she made me go to the magnet school. And when I got there, I went to the band in the morning and I hung out with all the band kids, room full of nerds. And then in the afternoon, I hang out with the cool guys because I, I smoke cigarettes. I sell weed after school. I hustle in the street. And that's what I did. Then finally, um, my, my after school friends will say, hey, Dre, why are you carrying that trumpet, man? That thing's stupid. You know what I'm saying? And they told me, get rid of the trumpet. It was tough because it was like either pick them or pick the trumpet. And 14, these are my friends. You can't, you know what I'm saying, get rid of your friends or I got rid of the trumpet. And I say growing up in a neighborhood without a dad was horrible. But people have done it and made it. Growing up poor, people have done it and made it. Try growing up without a dream is impossible. Because if you don't have a dream, you don't have a destination. So you just like kind of wandering around. When I gave up my trumpet, I decided wandering around until they found me and put me in prison.
0: So let's so that was your first time you had a purpose?
1: Yeah. When I quit playing the trumpet, I was always borderline. Doing little things on the side to make a couple extra dollars—nothing serious, just stuff to feed myself and to buy cool clothes and stuff like that. So if i wasn't going on a school trip, I got to hustle myself up. My mom wasn't gonna give me the money, and my dad was definitely gonna give me no money. So if I needed something, I had to provide it. So you get little side hustles to make the day go. Then when I when I quit my trumpet, it was just like the hustles became not part time but full time, and hanging out didn't become part time; it became all the time. And if you're 14, 15, hanging in the streets all night, nothing good's going to come of that. So one day I found myself in front of a judge and they sent me to state prison. And when I got there, I was scared to death. (laughs) There's no other way to put it. It It's terrifying going into maximum security prison at 18.
0: But you survived. You you had this light turn on and, and, you know, you decided that you would move up the chain of command.
1: Yeah, when you get to prison, um, the guys will kind of, say, what neighborhood you're from? You say, I'm from Brooklyn. I'm from Miami. Wherever neighborhood you're from, they're going to put you with those guys. There's somebody from your neighborhood already there. If they know you or not, if you're from that neighborhood, they're going to recruit you. So I got recruited from the guys from my neighborhood. Slash gang, I got in with them. And it just struck me like, why be at the bottom? Why not be the boss? And I went on a six-year journey. Nine state transfers. I've been shipped to nine different states. I've had two rides on airplanes, been charged eight times with attempted murder, convicted twice of attempted murder, two and a half years in solitary, fighting dogs, fighting. I mean, you name it, I've been through it. And every day was just a goal to become the number one guy. Then I made it to number three. I'm sitting in solitary confinement and I had a chance to become number one. I just had to attack a few more people. But before I could do it, I had an epiphany.
0: The epiphany. I want to talk about the epiphany. Because you were the king in a way in the prison system.
1: Oh yeah. If I literally, literally today, one of my old friends from the neighborhood called me. He's like three years older than me. He said, Yo, Dre, I'm running this business. And I'm in Boston. He used to work at a school. Now he runs a cleaning business. He cleans one some rec center. And he says, I got a guy that's down there and he knows you. And with, no they were talking and he said, Oh, you should talk to my guy Dre. He does a lot of stuff now. He said, Dre who? We said really I'm He said, Man, that guy's a warlord. He said, Man, that the guy used to come down a he used to come down a I Man, We get out the way, because you just never know what you're gonna expect. He might just go crazy on you. So he's like, This is 30 years later, and this guy's still having flashbacks.
0: So you're in the book, again, you listeners, you gotta get this book. It's amazing. You talk about that there was this riot and that you had, you know, you had a choice, you could go kind of left or right. And you said that you heard from God, that right. you actually had God talk to you. Can you talk about that moment and how that was an epiphany for you?
1: I went out on the rec yard in solitary confinement. We go out like 10 at a time. And the, the white guys were standing outside. Actually, a white guys, one of them was my basketball partner. And we played basketball together every day. But a friend of mine in, the, in another building yelled out to me that there was a riot at another prison. And my friends, they gotten stabbed by the white guys. It was my thinking to retaliate. That's all I know, retaliate. So the guy that I was about to play basketball with, I'm about to attack. Because when you draw a line in the sand, there's no friends. Either on this side or that side. But before I could actually hear the rest of the story and move forward with my attack. Now, had I attacked these guys, it would have propelled me from number three to number one, which has been a six-year goal of mine, be the number one guy. And God spoke to me. God said, I don't do this. Life choice. And you went, what? And I got mad. I said, I said, yeah, that's right. I said, why are you talking to me, God? I mean, and he said, Andre, don't do this life choice. I said, all my life, there's been no God. All my life, you've never shown up. My mother used to get beat to the floor. You didn't show up. You know I'm saying, when I'm threw through rocks at me, you didn't show up. When my dad walked out, you didn't show up. When he didn't come get me any of the Saturdays that he promised, you didn't say nothing. And when my sisters got hurt, I mean, I just went down a list of things that I knew I could remember vividly that he didn't intervene in he heard me and he said, Andre, don't do this life choice. I said, well, what do you want me to do instead? And literally right after, the guard came back and opened the gate to go back inside. We had been on the wreck yard maybe five minutes and we get 60 minutes of wreck time. If you ever want to see a riot in prison, try to end wreck early. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that's, it's like a principal thing. This is my wreck time. So when a guy opened the door, I went back into my cell and I sat down. I said, "Okay, what am I going to do now? I said, the path to number one was right there and it just got blocked. I said, what am I going to do now? Then I started thinking, if I can't be a psychopath, why be in prison?
0: You said in the book, the truth is that I grew up in a bubble of chaos and poverty, and that bubble shaped me until it could no longer hold me. Yeah. So it sounds like you said, am I going to be a psychopath or am I going to take another path? And so you then had this, and it's great, again, advice for anybody listening who's trying to find their purpose. You started saying you needed a plan.
1: Oh, definitely. No plan, no, no progress. You can't, you can't move a life without a plan. If you're a CEO, if you're a mom, if you're a coach, if you're whoever you are, you need a plan. Without a plan, you're just wandering around lost. So the first thing I did was I had to define what I wanted. I said, I want to be free. Then I looked around at all the white guys, black guys, Spanish guys, old guys, young guys, chess players, church guys. Everybody who got free came back. So I said, free doesn't work. So I don't want to be free. So I said, I want to be successful. So I'll be successful and I won't come back here. That's when I decided, well, successful people come from college. I'll go home, go to college, and that'll be that. So I picked a school called Harvard University and said, I'll go home and go to Harvard University and I'll be successful and I'll never come back to jail.
0: And and I know you told your mother that. And you said you, you're gonna get to Harvard. And you probably told all your your buddies, and they probably thought you were a nuts.
1: I came up my cell the next day, I told all the guys, listen, going home, going to Harvard, gonna be successful, let's do this. They all told me no. And they started telling me why I couldn't go to Harvard. They told me it was stupid, black people don't go to college. I'm a gang member. I'm a criminal. I'm a psychopath. And I didn't really hear them talking to me. What I heard was my friends in the ninth grade stealing my trumpet again. So I'm like, now nah, I've been down this path. So I let them, walked away from them, called my mom. She didn't believe me. My father didn't believe me. And I realized I was on my own. I just had to do this by myself.
0: And talk a little bit about your journey, your cadence of how you were. And you probably had temptation during that time. But you were beginning to lean into a new purpose.
1: I first came up with, a, with the destination. For me, it was successful in Harvard University. And I have an attitude of if you can't kill me, you can't stop me. That's always been my motto. If you're not talking about killing me, get out the way, because I'm going to get there. If I have to run through you or not. And I started going to school, got my GED. Then once I got my GED, I went to the law library. I started fighting my case in the courthouse instead of fighting my case on the yard, on the prison yard. Brilliant. And I started going to programs. I started meeting mentors. I started meeting people and listening to positive voices. And that is for eight years. I worked every single day. And because I was the number three, when I went to school, I gave other people permission to go to school. When I went to counseling and gave other people permission to go to counseling, so the stuff I was doing was deemed okay because I'm the boss. If the boss can do it, we can do it.
0: And so you started, I don't know if this is the right timing, the learning, you got your GED, you studied law in the library, you brought others into getting their GED. This was a path. How many years did it take when you had the new plan to when you finally got
1: parole? Eight years. And then I'm sitting in school one day. I turned to the teacher. I said, how come there's no people in school? She said, nobody signs up. I said, do you want people? She said, yeah. I said, are you sure? She said, yeah. So I walked up to the new man unit and said, who here doesn't have a GED? And everybody who raised their hand, I made them come to the desk. I made them all sign. I told the CO, at 1 o'clock, they go to the school building. Then I walked out. The guys are like, who's that? They're like, it doesn't matter. You got two choices. Go to school at 1 o'clock or get stabbed. (coughs) That's your option. He runs runs this prison. So either you're going to go to school or it's going to be a bad outcome for you. When I got back down to the school building, I got the principal. I said, listen, you got about 50 people coming at one o'clock. You better teach them. Again, you're starting to help others. That was my first program.
0: And, you, and it was. And your first, in a way, purpose steps towards your purpose. How did you feel? I mean, you had so much anger and, and it bottled up. And, but now you're beginning to help people. So what was that doing to kind of, again, help you with your shift, your pivot?
1: I didn't see it as a shift or pivot. I was just like, I was so focused on my thing that I didn't really pay attention to the collateral things that were happening around me. Like, I went to school to write my book. It was probably two weeks later. And I used to always stop in the classrooms because my classroom was at the end of the hall and just check in. Hey, guys, how you doing? I made them all sign up. At least I could do a stop and say hi. And one day I was coming down the hallway and the teacher said, hey, Johnny didn't come to class. I'm like, where could Johnny go? It's prison. So there's a wall around this place. So I don't know. He didn't come. So I turned around. I walked outside to the yard. And Johnny was walking with two or three of his friends just walking the track, talking trash. I said, yo, man, come in. I said, man, why aren't you in school? You're on my name. I said, these dudes can't help me. I said, I strongly suggest you walk into that school building before they take you to the hospital. And that's why I, I walked off. And he was in school in 20 minutes.
0: There you go. It's interesting because you say in the book again, you were being a king, a different mindset in a different way. You weren't the king of nowhere. You were king that was on a plan to do something. So how did you then ultimately get your parole? And then we're going to talk about your life outside of prison.
1: I started going to programs every day. And there's two things you can do with programs. You can do programs to get out or you can do programs to stay out. I did programs to learn how to stay out because most of my friends did programs to get out. They go to the parole board, they waive the paper, they waive the certificate and they go home, no nothing. And then they would fail. So I took every program extremely serious. I invested real energy, real focus, real time in getting the real lessons from everything and everybody. Anything I get my hands on, I turn into a lesson. I took a culinary class. Culinary taught me not how to cook, but how to follow instructions because I became a baker, and you can't bake and not follow instructions. I coached a basketball team for a young, oh, hard-headed kid. They taught me patience. <laughs> I mean, the classroom stuff, the psychology stuff, the counselor stuff, the mental health stuff, everything became a lesson. I turned my world into a college and everything in front of me was a class.
0: So you ultimately got out. And then part of your parole is you had to have a job and you had a great opportunity. And you talk a little bit about that experience.
1: When I came home, when I made parole, nobody believed it. It was like a shock to the world. And I actually walked out of prison and knowing the mental health counselor, he told me every program that I had done went up in enrollment times a hundred the day after I walked out of jail. They said, if it worked for Andre, it has to work for us.
0: Great role model. Okay.
1: So I left the prison, went to the parole office, left the parole office, went to a juvenile center. Ninety minutes after I walked out of prison, I was at a juvenile center talking to little black boys about why they were in lockup and why they were going to prison. And it was trauma. It was just trauma. It wasn't smoking weed. It wasn't guns. It wasn't being black. It was trauma. And I started teaching them about trauma-informed care. And then I started work, I was staying at a program who was designed to help young boys be better. Young men turn their life around. And when I showed up, the director of the program resented me because all the kids in the neighborhood looked up to me and not him. He's like, I have the degree. You don't. I have this. You don't. I care from the bottom of my soul. You don't. So they should love me. I'm like, but you're not them. You're an outsider. And you're coming here on this beat, this holier than thou stuff, and they they noticed the separation. They know I'm from the mud and they're dirty just like me. So there's no judgment when it comes to me. They feel as though you're judging them. So I he tried to get me locked back up because I was making him look bad in his own program. Then I switched over and started working for the Rev at a nonprofit. And we did $25 million my first four years there. We created a program for George W. Bush at the time called the Office of Faith Base. We created numerous gang outreach programs across the city. And then one day he woke up and he realized that I was competition in the media space. I never cared about being on TV. It's not my thing. But PBS tried to do a special on me and that offended him. Once he found out that PBS was trying to do a special on me, he got mad at me and he didn't want me around. So when I'm going to college and I'm working at Boston College to get my degree, he never finished. So he didn't want me to finish because then my story would be complete where his wasn't. So he became my biggest adversary and he was my biggest mentor. So I didn't look at him as an adversary.
0: And uh, almost in a way, if he was a surrogate father, that probably was a, a knife in your heart that somebody you looked up to, a mentor, and then he, dare I say, screwed you.
1: Oh, yeah he, yeah, he definitely. But the thing is, when people try to do you bad, again, I've come from a place of everything's a lesson. So he he screwed me over um, money-wise, business-wise. He got me to drop out of college because he didn't want me to get my degree. I didn't know it at the time. Everything, I can look back and see the reasons and the clarity. But when you're in it, you can't really see it. And he just was just an evil person. And in the end, I moved on from him. But the thing I will say is the four years I was there, I learned so much.
0: And so w- what advice would you have for our listeners who they want to learn and they've got this mentor, but the mentor's jealous? Is there anything that you can share that's like going to help them? I mean, I've been in places where people are je- I'm just working hard and people are like jealous because I'm working hard. W- what advice do you have for our listeners?
1: You can't stop. And control another person's lack of self-worth. There's nothing you can do about the next person's lack of self-worth. And the worst thing you can do is stoop down and try to make them feel better. It doesn't make them feel better. Your job is not to make somebody who's supposed to be a mentor feel better about themselves. That's their job. Your job is to live your best life. Some people shouldn't be mentors. And you just have to Take the lessons that you've gotten when you realize the circumstance and just move on. If you're, a, if you're in a place you can't move on immediately, just protect yourself emotionally and keep your job or your situation, but look for an exit. You should, Nobody's supposed to be in a bad situation forever.
0: There you go. And look how you got out of a very bad situation. I want to talk about the genesis of the Academy of Hope because it's an incredibly powerful approach about, prison culture, and really making an impact. And so can you talk about that?
1: So I came home and for 15 years straight, all I've done is create programs, help people, do outreach. So I've worked in Saudi Arabia. I've worked in Honduras. I've worked in Guatemala. I've worked in Sweden, worked in Australia. I've worked in West Africa with child soldiers. I've worked, I mean, I've worked all over the planet, Jamaica, Bermuda. I mean, I just go. Every day I get up and I go. I started working with white kids around drug addiction and suicide. I started working with corporate people around the imposter syndrome and just being more assertive. I've been with London Business School since 2001. i got my Harvard Fellowship in 2016. I mean, so YPO, I'm the highest-rated speaker in YPO history. I became an EO member. I'm just going. They're like, I just, I go, go, go. And then finally, I realized. You got to just keep going, keep going. And then I moved to a place where I was working with corporations now. So I'm working with a ton of corporations, um, Deutsche Bank, then Fools Alliance Construction, British Petroleum UK. I'm all over the planet doing corporate trainings and I got a good life. I fly on these little private jets and I go to these meetings and I get to show up and be authentic, be Andre. People love the difference. And it's great. They pay me a lot of money. And then I went to a conference and after the conference, when I finished speaking, a lady came up to me. She said, that was a great speech about being a gang boss. But can you really do that? I'm like, yeah. She said, well, we got seven dead people in South Carolina. Will you come to South Carolina? I looked at my calendar and said, I'm busy for the next six months. And at the end of the day, she said, where's your commitment to the work? So I said, OK. I, I called my assistant, changed my schedule. I flew to South Carolina. And they had, a, they had a riot where five, seven people were murdered, 30 people were wounded, the entire prison staff was shocked, the entire system was on lockdown, and they didn't have an answer. So I went in, and we went in, and we, was three of us, we went in, and we, for the first time in five and a half months, I got them to open the doors. They said, we can't open the doors, they're going to kill each other. I said, open the doors. So all these guys come out, two, three hundred guys come out at one time, they're like, yo, who are you? Some got got your door open. And we started having a conversation. Over six days, I spoke to 8,000 men at 10 prisons. And not one fight broke out, not one stabbing, not one situation. And they wrote the commissioner and said, hey, we want this guy to come back. And the, the, the commissioner reached out to me and said, hey, will you come back and set up a program? So I went back to South Carolina. We set up a program at the place where the murders happened. We've been there for four years.
0: And you have an amazing impact with zero. Can you talk about the zero Zero, zero,
1: zero. Oh, listen, we have real simple metrics. How do you, what do you measure us by? How many people got murdered? How many people got stabbed? And we were, we were at zeros. Since we started this program, and it was probably a year ago, there was a lieutenant in another unit, nothing to do with us, being attacked. I've trained the inmates to go out and do wellness walks, we call them. They go out and do patrols. <laughs> and there was a lieutenant being attacked and murdered. And one of my guys ran over and saved his life. He got stabbed six times to save the lieutenant's life. And when it was over, they said, why did you do that? They said, I, he says, I stand for what's right. I've always stood for what's right. The only differential was before the lieutenant wasn't in his what's right category. He wasn't a person. We made the lieutenant a person for him. Then his internal took over. So we believe in helping people. Um, there's no white, black, short, tall, East Coast, West Coast, European, Southern Africa. You're a person. We'll help you.
0: That's our model. So you are finding, you're living your purpose. You're helping to change, you know, the culture in prisons. You're, you know, having a tremendous amount of influence. You're helping companies, et cetera. And then, and again, you talk about this in the book, somehow you, maybe you pause for one moment and your demons caught up to you. And, and I, I'd love you to just talk a little about like people that, have gone through this tremendous life change. You found your purpose. You're doing the work. You're getting the accolades. And then all of a sudden, it all comes to a halt. Something happened to you. Can you talk a little little bit about that? Because then you went through uh, the six years in kind of isolation in the Virgin Islands, and then you recharged. So can you talk a little bit about that?
1: What I've been speaking and training and traveling for 15 years, 16 years, all over the world. Literally, all over the world, you name it, I've been there. I got to sit with the Ted Kennedy, the Richard Branson, and every CEO you can imagine, and every prime minister, and it was great. I, I was all over, but when I would, what would happen is, when it was all said and done, I'd fly back home, I'd go to a house, I'd be in the house by myself. I'd get up in the morning at six o'clock, and i go to work. I'd come home at three o'clock, my house would be empty, because i live alone. So I'd go back to work at 3.15. I'd come in the house at 11 o'clock my house is still empty. I go back to work. I come in house at two o'clock and then pass out. I did that every day because I hated being alone. I've been alone my whole life. I've been on my own since birth. I was as good at helping people. And that's all that mattered. Because when I finished, somebody was alive, somebody was better, somebody was in treatment, somebody's making more money, whatever the metric was. But it was not really focused on Andre. It was focused on them. So I kept going home to empty houses and empty hotel rooms and empty condos and Empty car rides and Christmas alone. And I'm like, man, this sucks. <laughs> At what point do I have a life? And do I deserve a life? Was my life just going to be this? And when I started having that first thought and more thoughts pep in, and I was like, man, this don't matter. People don't care about Andre. They care about what Andre can do. I mean, I thought that I didn't matter. The whole time I grew up in my mom's house, I didn't matter. When I went to these schools in the inner city, I didn't matter. I went to prison and jail. I didn't matter. So when I'm running around the city helping people, I didn't even feel like I mattered. And I kept that mindset. And when I finally gave up, for lack of a better term, and I just someone told me, "Well, I made enough money. I've helped enough people. <laughs> See, you can't argue with my stats." And I went to the island. I just put my feet up. And said, "I'm done." I mean, I can. I mean, I could justifiably say I've helped more people than a lot. So I've done my part, and I justified quitting and it wasn't until i quit it wasn't until i quit that i find out that these people that i'll call random people that i've met along the way were really attached to me because i don't do social media i didn't didn't do it back then and these people started calling me hey great where you at we haven't heard from you I'm like huh and they just kept calling and calling and calling until i finally came back to the states and i got set up in atlanta and i started selling real estate And they called me to St. Louis. So that's where seven of them were. And they said, why are you in Atlanta selling real estate? I'm like, making money. Why not? They said, that's not what you do. They said, what you do is you help people. You save lives. And they said, you need to get back to doing that. And they walked me back through. They said, we're going to make a board of directors. We're going to help you get your life and your business started again. I said, cool. About three and a half months after we got started, I got an email from Keith, who was my number one champion. And the email said his wife died. She had, and I didn't know it, but she had cancer and she lost her battle. And when I came down to the what, to the funeral, it was she was everybody's favorite cancer counselor, everybody's favorite cousin, everybody's favorite everything. But the entire time that Keith was helping me, his wife was battling cancer, and had he said to me, "Hey Dre, you're my friend, you're a buddy," but my wife is going to chemo, I can't help you. I understood. I wasn't even asking for help. But when he went to his wife, she said, go help your friend. And that's what she did. That's what he did. He helped me the whole way through. And it just that's why my book is dedicated to her, even though I've never met her personally. It's because of her and her spirit that she freed her husband up to come help me, a person she had never physically met.
0: It's a a beautiful story. Um, We're unfortunately getting towards the end of this podcast, but I want to talk about how you define your current purpose. Um, In the book, you you talk about, um, you know, it says my why Academy of Hope is positioned to change the violence, culture and corrections across the country. And that might not be your total purpose, but it certainly is really powerful. Um, So can you talk a little bit about that and and how you feel? um, This purpose is just so big, but you're so committed
1: to it. I'm committed to people being safe. As a little child living in the city, I wasn't safe. Whether it's from the kids on the corner throwing rocks, or my dad throwing punches at my mom, or my brothers beat me up, whatever you want to call it. It just wasn't safe. I mean, it shouldn't be normal that kids sit in their windows and watch drug deals go on every day, or prostitution going every day, or shootings going every day. It's not. I mean, like the world is seeing these mass shootings and like, oh my God, this is horrific. And it is. But I've been living in mass shootings since I was a baby. Mass shootings are acceptable where I come from, or it's just part of the day. It's not a big deal, and but it is a big deal because it causes unsafe people to feel unsafe, and it's just not good. So my goal is to diminish violence in all capacities. Domestic violence being the top of the list, human trafficking being the top of the list, prison violence being top of the list, people being shot in the cities being top of the list. And then the things that I've been through, I want to spare people from going through. And so I have strategies. So I'm working with CECP because they have 230 of the biggest companies on the planet. And throughout my entire 22 years of doing this work, companies have had the biggest impact on communities and on people because um, entrepreneurs get stuff done. Period. I mean, nothing against the church folks, nothing against the NGOs, nothing against the nonprofits, nothing against city government. Entrepreneurs get it done. So I partner with entrepreneurs to get stuff done. And if you want to change the dynamic in this country, you need entrepreneurs at the table, period.
0: I want to I want to read and I'll do it at the end your letter to brooks cuz you have a beautiful introduction to your son in this book but I would like to just say you've given us so much wisdom you've been so candid talking about your journey your pain your anger your pivots um what are two or it's hard what are two or three pieces of advice that you want to give to anyone listening about their finding their purpose maybe losing their purpose and getting back on the road to their purpose.
1: The first thing I want to say to everybody listening is you're not alone. This is not a one person mission. There are 6 billion people on this planet. And of the 6 billion people, I would tell you, I will stand up for you seven days a week, all day. They did an assessment on my life or my where I moved. They said, I don't express myself too thin. I said, uh, not the person, and the, the person at the end of the line doesn't believe so because they got saved. <laughs> so I don't spread myself too thin. I just show up. I just believe in showing up. So if you're listening to this and you're not sure or you're unsure or you're alone or you're just struggling, hey, reach out. I'm saying, Carol's right here. I'm right here. This isn't for entertainment. This is for reality purposes. We want you to do and be better, live your best life. And if you're struggling or you're just doing well and you just want to, hey, how do I do more? Carol and I are right here. We want to walk you through and help you process and walk through whatever it is that you want to get done. You're not doing it alone and you can always do it better, of course. And with, with good advice, solid criticism, I'm saying some good, some good suggestions, we can do anything. There's, we can look at man from history, all the things that have been created over the last five, 600 years, tells us the power that we possess. And when we work together, You're saying it just just exponentially goes to another space. We can solve almost anything if we want to. And sometimes it just takes that first person to say, you know something? I'm going to set the trend on this. I'm going to set the standard. I'm going to be the first person. And so when I came home for 22 years, I've lived my life in a way that people can say ex-offenders can be better. Now, hopefully the next guy doesn't have to live to this extreme. Like he can make a mistake. I don't feel as I can make a mistake because if I make a mistake, it wipes out all the people behind me. But the guy coming 10 years behind me, he, he won't have this burden. And that's great. So those of us who carry the burden, let's carry it. for those behind us who don't have to, so if you're struggling and you're not sure, the best thing to do, the easiest thing to do is reach out and ask us. We'll, we'll help you walk through. You're not alone.
0: You're not alone. And and also, I think you talk a, a lot in the book about your voice does matter because your silence, it, it's, it just doesn't work. You say, find your voice, find your space, speak up
1: to the people who are doing well, who are in charge or in control. And um, they think, hey, well, I'm over here in the suburbs. I'm uptown. I'm up in my office. And that's a problem for Chicago or Baltimore. Or that's a problem for that side of town. And your silence kills us. Um, in my TED talk, I said, "Until the people who matter speak up for the people who don't matter, we'll always suffer." Because, for the lack of a better term, the celebrities and the business people, other people who are listened to and looked to, and when they say, "Hey, man, the treatment of those folks over there is not good," then it changes. If we go back to Martin Luther King days. It wasn't until white pastors and white people marched with him. Did he get the term? It was just all black people. It was a field day. It was a free for all. Just go beat up some black kids. And that's what it was. nobody cared because the people who mattered in that instance, being white um, Christians and white Jewish folks and white entrepreneurs, when they stood up and said, hey, what you're doing to those people isn't good. Then it started to change at no time. Did a slave yelling out to the slave master, I'm tired, change his mind. It was other people who stood up and said, nah, we, we, this this has to end. And when white people talk to white people, we got changed. And when white people talk to white people, we get changed in the spaces where it's bigger than us. So this is a space where it's bigger than just us. So even though we've had a black president and black governors and politicians, it's bigger than just what black people want. We need to become part of the system, not just a piece of the system.
0: So I, I think that that's an amazing, amazing message for all our listeners. I, one other thing I'd love you to share is that you, we have a lot of corporations that listen to my podcast. And are, are there any um, ways that you want to share with them how they could get engaged in any
1: of your work? If they want, again, they, all they have to do is call you. Um, my when George Floyd died, I'm saying what happened was. George Floyd died and every white friend I had called me Mm -hmm. and said, Andre, what do I do? And what, what's my messaging? What's my positioning? What's, what's the copy we can write? Um, What, what stance do we do? What what we write a check to, what don't we write a check to? And because they just didn't know until you ask the unasked question, you will always be lost.
0: And the last question to you is that in the beginning of your book, your dedication seems to to Brooks, you have a letter to Brooks, your son, you end with a letter to your father, giving him forgiveness. Yes. And so can you just, why did you do your son and your father as the beginning and the end?
1: I started with him or dad, even though he wasn't the beginning of the book. We start through dad and we end through our kids. Um, So I am his legacy and passes forward to my son. And I just, for unpronounced to myself, was resentful and mad at him for years. And it, I just, because I learned to live with it, I learned to think it's not there. <laughs> so when I was, I wrote the book, submitted the book, I was done with the book, and I was sitting there and this pastor gave this great sermon about forgiveness and about your dad and about his dad. And I was like, man, how I write a whole book and not say anything nice about my father. So I went out and I stopped to edit it and I changed it and I put it in. And we are, we're not best friends. Um, we don't hang out a name like that, but I can still respect and love him for who he is and what he's done for me. Um, I wouldn't be breathing if not for him. So if he did anything else on the planet, he gave me life. He gave you life. He didn't give me a bike. He didn't take me to the park. He definitely didn't take me to Disney World, but he gave me life.
0: This has been an incredible conversation, Andre. I want to thank you so much for joining me today and for your amazing candor. To our listeners, when I met Andre at CECP earlier this year, I knew I had to bring him on to share his experience with all of you, not only because it is inspirational and provides a lens into a system we may not be familiar with, but because it's a true story of purpose. We're all at varying stages of our purpose journey. You may even still be waiting for your epiphany. But Andre's story illustrates a guide for us all. Recognizing a need to change, committing and acting, encouraging others to join, and refreshing his purpose so it remains relevant and guides him to new opportunities, Andre Norman provides an amazing inspiration and example for all of us, no matter where we are in our lives in our economic realities, and in our dreams. This podcast was brought to you by some amazing people, and I'd love to thank them. Anne Hundertmark and Kristen Kenny at Carol Cohn On Purpose, Pete Wright and Andy Nelson, our crack production team at True Story FM, and you, our listener, You know, we love hearing from you, so please give us feedback. Let us know names of people you'd like to hear on a future episode. How about some new questions to ask? And also, please rate and rank us because we really want to be as high as possible as one of the top business podcasts available so that we can continue exploring together the importance and the activation of authentic purpose. We all know every company, every brand, every not-for-profit must define their purpose, refine it, and activate it, and evolve it over time so it has the greatest impact on business, growth, and society. And by listening to these episodes and sharing them with your colleagues and talking about them, I want to inspire you to have an amazing answer to this question question, what is the power of your purpose? Thanks so much for listening.